My name is Julian Jackson. I'm with Moms for America. This is my wonderful husband, Al Jackson, of <laughs> 30 years. We've had seven kids together, uh, two little sons in the heavens, five are wild and alive children. And all those kids are the products of being taught principles of liberty and freedom. Honestly, we began to teach some of these stories and miracles of America maybe almost 14 years ago. So out of the five kids, three of them are out of the home, 27, 24, 22, and our 18-year-old is getting ready to fly the coop. So we'll have one babe left. But as I began to learn these principles of liberty and freedom in the cottage meeting, I came home and I began to teach them to our children, teach them to Al and our family, a little devotional. And it was transformative. It changed me as a mother. It changed kind of the trajectory mm -hmm. of our marriage and what mm -hmm. we began to do together. I would actually end up running for the state Senate and winning. And then is doing quite interesting and remarkable things, I think for freedom around the country mm -hmm. and our children, they've all, it's interesting how these principles have manifested themselves in their lives as they go out in the world. And I talk a lot about my children and teaching them principles of liberty in the classes that are online, the 12 introductory cottage meeting lessons that um, are online mm -hmm. and basically how to raise up this next generation of patriots and the 12 different types of uh, lessons that ultimately get them to that point. And so I have a real testimony and, um, you know, feeling for gathering together to learn principles of liberty and freedom. I've seen how it, it changes the family for the better. And, you know, when we gather together on Thursday evenings, it's Moms for America, but it's, it's obviously Dads for America. It's Families for America. So welcome, everybody. So really, you know, this whole concept that liberty begins at home. When parents know and revere the founding fathers and the Constitution, so will their children and grandchildren. Now, we might not see immediately the fruits of our love for our country within our children and grandchildren, but as you stick with it and you trust in God and you keep teaching them and you keep leading by example, you uh, will bear fruit. And I can promise you that even though sometimes you might wonder if there's any hope for some of your posterity, you know, and being the true patriots that you feel in your heart. But if you'll just get on that wall and continue to lead by example and word in their hour of need, that their, those teachings and that example of yours will, will rise up and bless them. You know, it seems like right now in the, in the country, there's a, a groups that have agendas and narratives and they're really anti-God and they're anti-family. And you know, you know, who, who might some of those groups be? BLM, Antifa, yeah, even the LGBT community, they are having less and less children. In fact, you know, some don't even advocate for uh, marriage. Their lifestyles aren't conducive to it. Maybe they're more intent. Their priority is more on reducing their carbon footprint or global warming, but they're not having children, these groups. Therefore, they want your children. They want our children. They want your grandchildren. And we're seeing them as they're, these groups are, are really uh, stepping it up as far as indoctrinating that children in the schools and they're, they're teaching them, you know, their, their platforms at younger and younger ages in the school systems. And certainly 
you know, our children and grandchildren are being indoctrinated through the universities and through social media and through movies. And we can't even trust Disney anymore. You know, it makes me realize I had to be very intentional on what I'm talking about with my children or teaching them or what we're bringing into our home or what schools my kids, you know, are going to, or even how we're going to vacation or how, you know, who's going to get our money. You know, we have to continue to teach our posterity, our our grands, our, our kids to love God and to teach them, you know, that to, to know him through word and through prayer and to keep those kids, keep our families close and make quality family time a high priority and to continue to learn and to study so that we can in turn shore up our kids, you know, with the knowledge that we're gaining. And as we do that, it helps anchor these kids and grandchildren in hope when the storms of life come. I mean, we're seeing that that little young 18 year old Texas shooter a few days ago, you know, what a troubled young man that he was and what a, uh, you know, troubled home that he came from. Now the enemies of freedom, the enemies of God will say, you know, it was all about the guns or we, you know, we need, we need further restrictions, but no one wants to talk about what the real core of the problem is, is the breakdown of the family. You know, when you begin to, to, to not advocate for marriage or you promote out of uh, wedlock births or when you begin to pull God and, and uh, you know, prayer out of schools and parents are no longer teaching their children, uh, you know, about God, it impacts the child. And certainly the last few years as we pulled the kids out of school systems and sequestered them at home and they're so fearful and and, you know, uh, it's having an impact and we're, we're seeing that. So, you know, I do believe, and, and I think all of us here do, that what we teach our children and our grandchildren within the four walls of our home will be the greatest protection and armor that we can give them. And thanks, Sandra, for, you know, mentioning Memorial Day and all those great men and women that have, have given so much to the sacrifice of this country. I mean, our children or grandchildren are watching us and we, we need to make a big deal about Memorial Day and they need to know that we love America. We, you know, we, we need to be intentional about what we talk about with them and even how we decorate our homes and celebrate holidays and what we watch on TV and, and the places that we go to visit. You know that it does not go unnoticed by your children and your grandchildren that you're attending cottage meetings or you're you're learning these principles of liberty because no doubt you're probably discussing it, weaving it into your conversations or your little texts or your family devotions, you know. So we are in our eighth of our 12 weeks of our class Mm -hmm. for the 5,000. We're zipping along here. We only have four more classes after tonight. These beautiful principles of liberty, I hope you're growing to love them. Are they becoming your best friends? They do as you become to memorize you. You know, I'm a big advocate of memorizing them. But these principles are just that powerful. Within 200 years of living under these principles, we went from the ox and the cart and the plow and the horse to putting a man on the moon. You've heard me repeat this every week, but there's power in reminding us of these principles 
So last week we discussed principles 14 and 15 from the 5,000 year leap. Now, some of you might have this book. I hope you have the student manual edition where you kind of have to fill in the blanks because you have more space to take good notes. And it was Sunday help you to teach a cottage meeting. So last week we had principles 14 and 15 where we talked about the natural law of economics, that there's actually a godly law surrounding economics. And as I'm studying the Old Testament this year, I see it as I'm, you know, I'm just finished up with uh, Deuteronomy. I'm going into Joshua now. But, you know, the highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a limited uh, government regulations. And we're seeing, we're seeing the whole crisis with the baby formula that we talked about last week because the government got involved in the markets and, and began to subsidize, you know, baby formulas, which wiped out the competition and only a handful of factories are making formula. And, and so you can see what happens when the government gets involved in the free market. We're, we're seeing that played out with the formula. So this week, we're going to study principles 16, 17, and 18, which is the crux of American government, the separation of powers and the checks and balances that our founders wove into the constitution. So I hope you filled in your blanks and you're ready to take notes. Remember, if you ever miss any classes, all these classes are recorded at momsforamerica.us. I hope you've got your little um, bookmarks here. You're, you bought your hundred for five bucks at the National Center for Constitutional Studies, hopefully. And, um, you know, I think really the reason that we're having the problems that we are in this country is because of uh, the separation of checks and balances and the disruption of the um, the separation of powers and the checks and balances have been disrupted by modern amendments, particularly the 16th and 17th amendment that was passed in 1913. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as you go through the healing of America seminars, you understand how that happened and how we can fix and heal uh, some of these amendments that have been very disruptive to the principles 16 and 17 that we're going to talk about tonight. So Al is going to Get us started in principle number 16. We're going to cover principle 16, 17, and 18. So the 16th principle says the government should be separated into three branches. That's the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. As we've talked about several times before, the founders were students of history. They brought all of that knowledge and wisdom to them, to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. They all read out of the same books. They read from the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so they came with this knowledge. And as you study history, there are really three types of governments that have ever existed. There has been monarchies where there is a single powerful ruler. There is the aristocracy where the best families of the country rule. And then there is a democracy where decisions are made by the whole people based on feelings. We've talked about what a democracy is. So the majority rules. So if the majority gets together and says they feel like something that they wanna pass that's contrary to God's law based on their feelings, they will pass it and make it law. And so, 
what happens is what happened was there's a man by Polybius and all the founders had studied this Greek historian. He lived about 200 years before the birth of Christ. And he highlights the merits of these, these three types of government. So Polybius saw that the essential elements of all three being developed in Rome. And he saw, he studied monarchies, he studied aristocracies, and he studied democracies. And in a monarchy, he realized that the king or the queen would have direct administration of the government and make, be able to make decisions quickly, particularly in a time of war. Then he noticed and studied that in an aristocracy, those families that are running the country, they really represent the vested interests of themselves because they're wealthy and the developed resources of the nation. They want to continue the nation to prosper. And then a democracy represents the interests of all the masses. So during this time that he lived, he recognized that the Romans were moving towards a Republican type of government. And he died, so he didn't really get to see that come to fruition. And so after he died, the Romans went to an emperor. They went to an emperor. As ben Benjamin Franklin has said, and we've quoted him, there's a human tendency for people to want to move towards a kingly government thinking that that individual would even out things among the people. So Polybius believed that the strength of a monarchy would handle the executive duties of the government, that the aristocracy would more or less be kind of like what we have today, the United States Senate, where the wealth and the established order would be represented. And then in a democracy, the interests of the general populace would be represented in what we would call an assembly. Unfortunately, none of these systems operating by themselves provided for equality, prosperity, justice, or domestic tranquility for the entire people. So here's the question. So the main question is, how do you blend all three of those into a government that works? Because over time, as you see it, on the left there, a monarchy eventually morphs into tyranny, where you've got, you hope and pray that you get a good king. Oftentimes it's a bad king and all the decision-making, all three branches of government are concentrated into that one person and it morphs into tyranny. An aristocracy, as you can see the fat cats in the middle there, they turn out to be an oligarchy and then only their interests are served and then the people's interests become secondary. And then a democracy, of course, you know, we get, we get mob rule. We get mob rule. So what Polybius had proposed was what he called a mixed constitution where you would combine all three, the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the democracy. And from the text we read, if these three separate departments were set up as a coordinated equals, they could perform their necessary functions, but at the same time, counterbalance one another as a restraining mechanism so that no one of them would acquire sufficient power to abuse the people. This is the principle of checks and balances or separation of powers, because you build into the system a peaceful means for self-repair. 
And we'll discuss that in principle 17 when we get to talk, when we talk about checks and balances. But the other principle that we want to highlight here is a separation of powers as we separate the power between the three branches of government. So Polybius dies, he goes away, and then who comes along to take up the mantle of this mixed constitution or separation of powers? It's Baron Charles de Montesquieu, who was a French philosopher. He saw the legislature as enacting the laws and the executive branch as administering them. But he also felt that it was important to have an independent judiciary to interpret and enforce the laws. And the key phrase there is to interpret and enforce the laws, not make laws is what we have today in our judicial, judicial system. So with regard to a single executive, there was extensive debate in the Constitutional Convention because the, the founders were just, they did not want to have a king in power. And so they spent a lot of time debating about presidents. So New Jersey, during the Constitutional Convention, wanted several presidents. Edmund Randolph from Virginia wanted three. He wanted a president for the northern states, a president for the middle states, and a president for the southern states. Fortunately, James Wilson from Pennsylvania rose and said, that's not good. We need one president, one president with fixed responsibility, limited in its authority, but with no buck passing. And so they all agreed that that made sense. That made complete and total sense because we don't want to repeat history. We don't want to go back to the two councils in Rome. Who's that uh, Julius Caesar and who was the one that betrayed him? Who is that? I can't think. Brutus. That's right. It was Brutus. <laughs> you, had the two you had the two councils in Rome, and then you had the 30, the 30 tyrants of Greece. So the founders wanted to avoid that. And because they showed up having read out of the same books, and there was give and take, and when you have the opportunity to recognize that, hey, they, I think James Wilson has a good point. Let's go with him. Okay, so let me stop sharing the screen here and go back to Julene. She's going to talk about John Adams. John Adams, yes. So John Adams, our wonderful second president of America, uh, was a studier of the divine science of good government. In fact, he was really the first among the founding fathers to capture this vision of Montesquieu and probably Polybius. Polybius. Polybius, his last name. I looked it up with Jenkins. Polybius Jenkins, all right, born in uh, 204 BC. Right, was Greece. it BC or AD? BC. BC. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that he, like Cicero, caught visions of what the future yeah. was going to be? They were inspired men. They were inspired. For sure. So. For yes. sure. And they wrote down what they what their foundings were. Yeah. So and that that's that's a lesson for us to journal, write down yeah. things, write your thoughts down, write even for your posterity. Yeah. So John Adams caught this vision of Montesquieu and, and began to want to set up this self-repairing, this notion of a self-repairing national government under a separation of powers doctrine. And he would go on to say that he looked at politics as a divine science. Isn't that interesting? A divine science. And he would go on to really devote his whole life to this study and he wrote to his wife, Abigail, he said there under John Adams studies the divine science of good government. 
The science of government is my duty to study more than of the other sciences. He said, it's the art of legislation and administration and negotiation. I must study politics and war so that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, and naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children the right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. Thank goodness <laughs> for that foresight in him understanding that they had to get the foundation of this nation right so that the future generations could, so cool. could go on to study a, a vast array of subjects. The best principles of sound constitutionalism, however, <laughs> was unpopular. Uh, most people weren't so enamored with the divine uh, uh, science of good government. And Adams realized that, that this, these, these principles were not going to make for him being a popular politician. Now, when he was involved in Massachusetts convention in 1779, about eight years before the constitution was written, he tried to, you know, uh, to put forth some of the, these ideas and it wasn't received very well. Ultimately, he was the one that um, would draw up that constitution. And in spite of all the opposition he was receiving in that state Massachusetts convention, he was successful uh, in adopting into that constitution uh, a separation of powers in that constitution in that state constitution. And that probably led the way for that to, to be seamlessly added into our federal constitution eight years later in 1787. Now the modern apostle of the divine sciences of good government, John Adams would go unappreciated for his efforts and for this study and for this inspiration that, that you know, he was given at that time. Of course, John Adams would go on to become George Washington's vice president and to become the second president of this country. But, you know, a hundred years after the founding of this country, neither George Washington or the state of Massachusetts had erected any kind of monument to John Adams. And, you know, he, I think John Adams had a complex that he wasn't a very well-liked or popular guy. And, he recognized, and he, he recognized that. He suspected that there'd be very few people that would remember and appreciate all his efforts of studying this divine science of good politics. He actually would go on to say here, mausoleums, statues, statues, monuments will never be erected to me. Praising romances will never be written nor flattering orations spoken to transmit me to posterity in brilliant colors. Poor guy, he must have had been having a bad day when he put mm -hmm. forth that declaration. But uh, thank goodness we get him and we understand and appreciate what he understood to be so important, this concept of separation of powers and checks and balances. And I just think, you know, sometimes when we are feeling like, you know, the work and the effort that we're putting forth to teach and train up our children or our family members or to things that we're doing to shore up our communities in this country, just take heart that our efforts will not go unnoticed someday 
somehow let's just have the faith that they mm -hmm. will be recognized and and it will be a part of you know making this land what it is so you know but, um Adams actually would prophesy that this constitution would go on to sustain and support 300 million in this country. Now, when they wrote the constitution, there was about 3 million a population and John Adams said it was his aspiration to see rising in America an empire of liberty and the prospect of two or 300 million free men without one noble or one king among them. And of course, we have about 320 million people and we under this constitution that is still going strong under these principles of uh, a separation of power and checks and balances, literally his aspiration, this prophecy, so to speak, is being fulfilled that they wrote a constitution mm -hmm. that would be enduring for the ages that they said and acknowledged was struck off by the hand of God. So Al is going to take us into the 17th principle now. Okay, thank you, Janini. So the 17th principle says, a system of checks and balances should be adopted to prevent the abuse of power. The founders understood men's propensity to lust for power. In fact, they didn't even trust themselves. So they put a system in place to provide enough government to protect the rights of the people, but not too much power to abuse the people. Go back to Jefferson's quote. He said, let there be no confidence in men, but bind him down from mischief with the change of the constitution. And that's done through separation of powers and checks and balances. That's why the constitution as Julian highlighted will never be considered obsolete. Those are the foundational underpinnings. Those are the things that we want to communicate to individuals to help them understand the real purpose of the Constitution. We have so many people today that are attacking that document. They're really, after, actually, they're attacking the people that wrote it. And so if you can't attack the doctrine, then you go after the personality, but then when you engage them in, well, what, tell us what part of the constitution is obsolete or doesn't work for our day. And you won't get much of a response back. But then if you highlight those principles of checks and balances and separation of powers, then you're doing some teaching. So the founders, as Madison explained in the Federalist Papers, which I think is another good read, it's kind of complicated, the Federalist Papers, but if you really take a look at them and do just a cursory review of them, you'll find them inspiring. In fact, they wrote the Federalist Papers to convince the states to ratify the Constitution when they went out. It was, it was John Jay, it was Alexander Hamilton, and the third person was James Madison. So he explained in the Federalist Papers because they wanted to avoid what they studied in history where, where one or few would control all three branches of government. So they wanted to separate powers, then build in a natural system of checks and balances. So today the opponents of freedom say they support the weak and the middle class, but they really want to establish themselves to be the people who are sitting on top, directing everything below the elitism. They want, to, they want us to look to them instead of God. They want us to look to government instead of God. That's why they're working so hard 
to remove, remove Christianity and religion and replace it with more laws, more laws, but really avoid what you highlighted so beautifully in the beginning, the real root of the problems, which are weak families and no God, getting God out. And God's, he's the one that helps change people's behavior. So Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few or many, whether hereditary, self-appointed or elective may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Is that, is that what we're having? That's what we see today. Today, the executive, our president is way too powerful. That office is way too powerful. As we moved away from the original intent of the constitution through usurpation, bad amendments to the Constitution and poor Supreme Court decisions. Now we have a president who behaves as a king. In fact, I think Mr. Biden signed an executive order today regarding police reform. And I have not read it, but I'm sure there are things in there that have to do with what happened in Texas and infringing upon our Second Amendment, right? I need to take take a, a closer look at that. I wonder but, what that would have to do with police. Yes, exactly. team. Right. So, does blending blending does not mean usurping? We talk about combining these three branches of government, or not so much combining them, but having them work together. So, the challenge is to create these three separate branches that work together. But as Madison wrote, provide some practical security for each against the invasion of the other. So what does usurpation of one department over another look like today? So there's an example, just highlighted it, executive orders. They're being treated as laws. Mandates from your local leaders, they're treating them as laws. They're, those are not laws. The laws are supposed to be created in the legislative branch and then signed by the executive. Presidents going to war without the consent of the Congress. The, the Supreme Court legislating from the bench. Marriage is a perfect example. The states highlighted what they wanted. God's laws specifically clear about marriage and they changed that. They legislated from the bench. These are, these are examples of what usurpation looks like. The founders, however, called upon an educated citizenry to keep the government within the bounds of the constitution. Unfortunately though, our ignorance has contributed to this usurpation of power between the three branches of government. The court decision on marriage, which I just highlighted, all it would take is for one state to say, no, we're not doing it. Because if the judicial branch has no legislative authority, they also have no enforcement mechanism. Maybe have your state don't take federal money as it relates to education and caring for the poor because they end up directing you. When you take a dollar of federal money, they end up having change, uh, change or what's the word I'm looking for here? Mandates that come along with it because you take that federal money. We, we've been behaving like sheep as it comes to following these mandates. We do it without question. And so they're, they're banking on the collective ignorance of the group. What does Dr. Kimber say? We pool our ignorance every two years when we show up to vote. <laughs> so before turning back to Julian, I want to highlight the very 
Julian's going to highlight the various checks and balances built in by the founders. But I'd like to remember this. I'm going to read directly from the text. It says, the Constitution made the department separate as to their assigned function, but made them dependent upon one another to be fully operative. To be fully operative. Okay, Jalene, you want to highlight for us some real practical original intent examples of checks and balances. Okay, so under the original intent of the founders concerning the uh, checks and balances, the first one, so we're just going to give some examples of the checks and balances the founders intended and wove into the Constitution, was that the House would serve as a check on the Senate since no statute or law can become can be passed without the approval of one or the other, okay? So if something is passed in the House, it must go to the Senate and be passed and, and vice versa. So that was considered a check and a balance. A president, number three, can restrain both the House and Senate by vetoing legislation that comes to him. But another check and a balance would be Number four, that the Senate, on the other hand, is able to override the president's veto with two thirds of majority of both the Senate and the House, all right? So these are examples of checks and balances right now on the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, number, let's see, number five, the legislature also has a further check on the president through its power of discriminating, appropriating funds for the operation of the executive branch. So it's interesting that the legislature holds the purse strings for all the branches of government. So if they do something they don't agree with, they just don't have to fund it now. Oftentimes, yeah, our legislators don't seem to have the will or the political spine to do that, but they they can completely shut certain ideas or programs down. um, So when, when I first started lobbying, back in the early 90s, Congress actually would do appropriation bills individually. So they would, they would fund Department of Transportation, one bill by itself, Department of Defense, one bill by itself. And it, it made it so they were able to really put a check on the federal government. And then the last decade, decade and a half, they now come cobble all the appropriation bills into one bill called an omnibus that nobody has any time to read before it's passed and nobody can object to certain pieces of legislation that's in these bills. So they gobble it all together and pass a $1 trillion package and send it to the president to sign. So that's why do you think they did that? Well, so they could hide things in those big bills. Mm -hmm. They could hide things in those big bills Mm -hmm. and give the executive way more power than he should have. And we talk about why they might want to delegate some of their authority, the legislative branch to the executive in those Healing of America seminars. So those are, those are good. Maybe have that be on your summer watching or reading list. Number six, uh, the president must have the approval of the Senate in filling important offices of the executive branch. So his cabinet members must be confirmed by the Senate. So that's a check in the balance. Number seven, the president must also have the approval of the Senate for any treaties uh, with foreign nations that can go into effect. So right now, we're talking a lot about the World Health Organization wanting to put forth a global pandemic treaty. 
And it, it, that could be really scary because what the World Health Organization is proposing is that they take control over um, national healthcare decisions, not only for our nation, but for <laughs> all the nations. And therefore the World Health Organization, if this treaty were passed, would be able to enact global lockdowns. Which is run by China, by the way. The, the World Health Organization, yeah. yeah. So they could enact uh, global quarantines and declare global emergencies. But, you know, it's interesting in our constitution, it says that no treaty can be approved or enacted unless two thirds of the Senate, that's 66 senators out of 100, approve that. And I believe they'd have a really hard time, mm -hmm. you know, approving the world, the pandemic uh, global treaty that is being talked about. And even though, you know, they're trying to say, oh, 40 countries have signed on and big European countries have, that doesn't necessarily mean that their parliaments or their Congresses will sign, okay? They could just refuse uh, uh, to go along with that treaty, just like our Congress, I dare say, two thirds of our Senate would not uh, approve this treaty that the president might sign with, uh, you know, that the World Health Organization is putting forth. And, and it takes a few years to get those kind of treaties enacted. And at that time, possibly you could have new leadership that would just refuse to follow it, or there would be countries that could renege on their commitment. Not to say this is a problematic, you know, treaty that the World Health Organization is proposing, but but we have a check and a balance written into the first amendment in our constitution that says no treaty. The first article can be uh, passed without two thirds of the Senate approval. Okay, so that's a check and a balance on this pandemic treaty that's being kind of floated out there right now. You know, what are some of the checks and balances on the courts, the judiciary? And this is the very thing that our founders were worried about because they didn't put enough checks on the Supreme Court. The judiciary has a check on the legislature number 11, through its authority to review all laws and possibly determine, oh yeah, those laws are unconstitutional and strike them down. And, and um, this has been a big problem in the last few decades as the courts have uh, misinterpreted the Fifth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, and uh, uh, misinterpreted the 14th Amendment and has, has used you know, the due process clause and the equal protection clause to actually strike down states amendments to, to protect marriage between a man and a woman. And so this is a, a, a check that has been abused uh, by the judiciary. Number 12, Congress, on the other hand, has a restraining over the judiciary by having the constitutional authority to restrict the extent of its jurisdiction. So courts technically cannot hear all kind of cases except the Supreme Court if it's not within their jurisdiction. So that was meant to be a check. Hasn't worked so well though, that check. These checks on the courts have not really been that effective. Would you say it's because of the 14th Amendment? Right, because the, the 14th Amendment, the courts read that to mean that the federal government can, can supersede state law. Supersede, yeah, exactly. And 
really that's what was the 14th amendment it was to secure the natural citizen rights of former slaves and somehow that has been distorted to give the federal government the right to uh, supersede and impose and strike down laws and states isn't that interesting based on a this clause is called the due process clause in the fifth and the 14th amendment we go through this quite extensively in the healing of america seminar mm -hmm. And another uh, check is uh, that Congress has the power to impeach any of the judges you know, on the court systems to which that has never happened on the Supreme Court and just a few times throughout history. So they're, they're not using these checks and balances to rein in um, the judiciary system. To be honest with you, we need to uh, put forward the judicial amendment to, to put into place more checks and balances. And we talk about this, how we can restore the constitution and repair the judicial uh, branch in the Healing of America seminar number four, how to restore the constitution. Ultimately number 18, and I haven't gone through all these checks and balances, but number 18, it says the people have a check on their congressman every two years, the president every four years, and their senator every six years. And how do how what is that check? It's voting, getting out there and voting and ensuring that we put, you know, the best candidates forward. George Washington talked about this in his farewell address, the importance of preserving this founder system of checks and balances and the separation of power. And he, he talked about, you know, if, if there's a problem, let it be corrected through the constitution. Don't let their change come through usurpation. Because he said, even though in this one instance, it was an instrument of good and he must've meant the revolutionary war when we did usurp, usurp you know, the British government. But he said, it is, the, it is the customary weapon, however, usurpation by which free governments are destroyed. So he wanted us to work within this new, newly adopted constitution, the separation of powers, these checks and balances they embedded in the constitution. So the constitution was what the founders knew to be the tool, the device for peaceful self-repair. Now, over the last 200 plus years in, in our country, the constitution, uh, has over the last 200 years that our constitution has been in operation, it really has carried our nation through a series of traumatic crises. I mean, think of uh, presidential assassinations and wars. Think about, you know, ungodly laws of abortion that was enacted 50 years ago. Think about just recently dishonest elections and and uh, boy, in Washington, D.C., every day they talk about June 6th and how we survived that insurrection that lasted one hour. <laughs> and, and so there are, you know, even in our points of genuine crisis, there have been, there's this kind of built-in constitutional machinery and protections to take care of that. And, and even with, you know, the election chicaneries that we saw in 2020, what it did for a lot of states is they went back and retooled their election laws and they're tightening up their election laws because of, you know, the citizens petitioning their government for a redress, if you want to say, on January 6th. 
So that it's such a contrast to see other nations who have claimed to copy our constitution with its checks and balances, but really fail to incorporate adequate checks and balances. And, and when certain presidents have been elected, they've actually suspended their constitutions and used their armies to stay in power, resorting to machine guns and bombs and, and this kind of thing. And so um, what the founders wished to achieve in the constitution of 1787 was the machinery for a peaceful means of self-repair. And I think we even saw that with Roe v. Wade that was passed hundred years or 50 years ago in seven, 1973 and how it looks like it's going to be overturned and sent back to the states because that was a really an overreach of federal powers to enact a national law to legalize abortion. It never should have been that way. And we're seeing a self-correction. So the courts are sending it back to individual states to decide their abortion laws. And, and um, you know, we also saw an example of this with Watergate when Nixon, you know, was found to be uh, spying illegally on the Democratic Party. Is that right? How he resigned and there was a quiet uh, and peace will really transfer power. So the Constitution with its checks and balances and its separation of powers was meant to ensure that we were going to have domestic tranquility. That, and, you know, as, as some of us have uh, maybe traveled or lived in nations during times of great turmoil and revolution, we know how that feels because we don't really feel that in our, in our nation. Al and I were just in Egypt six months ago. And every time our chartered tour bus went outside of the confines of Cairo, the tour bus, uh, the travel company would hire armed guards to ride ahead of us or behind us, or sometimes mm -hmm. both in these pickup trucks with their guns to protect us. <laughs> Actually, it was, it was really to protect me. To protect you? Yeah, that was, I, I, they didn't want to tell you all, but it was really there for me. <laughs> a, a legend in his own mind, <laughs> Al Jackson. And so, you know, it's just interesting to see, you know, that, that countries that don't really have strong principles of liberty enacted in their constitution and aren't ab abiding by them, they really do use violence to bring about change or political change. When we were in Egypt, remember how we drove by probably half a dozen times that parade grandstand? And I remember uh, the tour guide pointing out that it was that parade grandstand where 40 years ago, Anwar oh, Sadat was killed right. and, and the um, Islamic jihadists took over their government. Yeah. And, uh, and so really, I think sometimes we take for granted these these you know checks and balances and principles of good governance the divine science of good government in our constitution because most countries don't live under this kind of domestic tranquility right. okay alice going right. to finish up with the 18th principle what is it it is yes i know what it is that the inalienable rights of people are most likely to be preserved when the principles of the government are set forth in a written constitution. Okay, written constitution. And you know, our constitution is the oldest existing national constitution. Gonna, that's part of oh. my lesson. Oh, okay. 
Okay, sorry. Right. You wouldn't think because we're not the oldest nation, but we have stuck. Do you want to do 18? Go for it, baby. <laughs> okay, so we, we talked in one of our, I can't remember what, oh, in the beginning, in the intro, we talked a lot about the reading assignment that I gave you all, Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 26. There we have in the Old Testament, what our first republic looked like. And this was an exchange between Jethro and Moses, where Jethro comes to Moses and says, why are you doing this? Why are you meeting with the people? You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear them out. So what I would suggest you do is allow divide them up into families and allow the, le- the people to pick their leaders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So they can take care of the small problems and you can take care of the big ones. So then fast forward to 1200 AD, and we've got the Anglo-Saxons who lived under a republic. Here's the problem, though. They never wrote down their government. They never wrote it down on a piece of paper. And so they learned the hard way that that wasn't such a good idea because subsequent kings would come by wars, bloodshed, and tyranny, and each king didn't respect their rights. So there's then the need for, in 1215 AD, the Magna Carta. And Magna Carta. In 1628, the Petition of Ritz. Right. Okay, good. And then 1689, the English Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights. <laughs> That's exactly right. And as Julene stole from my lesson, the first free people of modern times to, to have a written constitution was America, was America, because they studied other governments and knew that you had to write this down and have a written constitution. 233 years old is our constitution. And so when we talk about the founders, where is that slide? I want to show this because I love this picture of the founders. Here we go. So these gentlemen showed up in May 1787. They had read out of the same books. They had a foundation in the Bible. They were able, most of them were able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. They came with an attitude of being part of the solution and not the problem. So there was give and take. They focused on reaching general agreement or consensus where they talked through things, where they gave in to others who brought up good points. And so it was, and they all come from different walks of life. And so therefore, it was the collective wisdom of all of them that created the constitution that we enjoy today. And they were definitely inspired by God to do it. And so when we get into the Healing of America seminars next fall, I believe, we're going to go into some detail on where they got their ideas and, and the mechanism that they use to create active, robust debate. And were they disagreeable and did they argue? Absolutely. But they all came with an attitude, unlike today, where people represent certain parties and they're more beholden to the party than they are to the people, these individuals were beholden to the people and they came with that attitude in mind. And as I said before, it was the collective wisdom of all of them 
that created the Constitution. Okay, Jalene. I really like, as I'm looking at those little founders, don't you just kind of feel their little hearts and souls? And I, I wonder what they would be thinking from the, you know, all their labors and efforts, uh, you know, how, how really 85% of the Constitution is enduring, you know, it's about 15% that, that needs some restoration and repair, but Oh, I just am so appreciative to them and for their genius of understanding the separation of powers amongst the three branches and the checks and balances in order to present one branch from becoming more dominant or overreaching. And, and obviously that's not the case so much anymore with the 16th and 17th amendment, but, but you know, when they had this completely written document containing the rule of law, it really did protect America when we're living truly under these principles from a runaway federal government or from the human frailties of who might be in power leading at that time. And it really was the secret to our success in the first hundred years or so, even though we had 6% of the population. Is it five or 6%? 6% of the population, we are producing over 50% of the world's wealth, okay? So as we have veered away from the rule of law, established in the constitution as modern amendments have, have you know tampered with the rule of law our country hasn't done so well you know as we've been uh, impacted laws by emotionalism and or popular trends or feelings of the day and as legislatures have passed laws that have been you know ungodly laws contrary to natural law because remember, that's the best way to have strong government and good relationships is to base your legislation on godly law. Remember Cicero, who was born 100 AD and died 40 years before the birth of Christ, said that ungodly law would be a scourge to humanity. And, you know, we're seeing as we you know, are enacting ungodly laws over the past decades and pulled God out of school, that now the nation, you know, we're, we're reaping the whirlwind of what has been sown because of that. And, and our nation is being rocked with crimes and conflict. And I mean, almost daily, you know, we're raining down terror. You know, the fruits of this ungodly law is raining down terror on this nation. And many people are so afraid and anxious and depressed. And, you know, we're seeing that they're thinking people that are, have succumbed to this kind of fear that government is the answer and more intervention is the key. But as we continue to study the patterns of history and how God works, and how he reveres maximum liberty and freedom, that we know that more oversight by you know, government is not the key. What is needed is really a spiritual and patriotic revival, a rejuvenation. So how do we do that? We do that by strengthening our relationship with God, strengthening our homes, continuing to learn and study the word of God and to learn and study patterns of history. And then to go out and be a part of strengthening our, our communities, our schools, our churches. And, you know, each of us have a role to play in healing this land. And the darkness that we feel might fill in this nation or in the world is 
I mean, it really allows us and helps us to understand that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the light of the gospel of freedom is needed more now than ever before. So when we go to him, when we go to God and we bring others around us that we love to God, he will see this act of faith and he will make us whole. He will make our loved ones whole and he will make this nation whole. And so ultimately we know God prevails. We just got to make sure we're on his side. So we're studying Old Testament in our family last night. You led the kids in, in that uh, discussion of Joshua. And how many times does the Lord remind Joshua? I know you're about to bring the Israelites finally after 40 years into the promised land against these giant Canaanites. But I got you. He's, he talks about in Joshua 1.9 and throughout Joshua multiple times be strong and of good courage because i the lord god will be with you and it's almost as if as i'm reading and studying this week he is reminding me over and over julini you be strong you be a good courage i have got you the god of the universe has us and so we have every reason to be optimistic and hopeful as we move forward as we try to strengthen our personal relation with God and strengthen those around us and be a part of the solution and get on that wall and say, okay, Lord, I'm a little old, tiny, little old, humble me. Here I am. Send me. What can I do? And uh, he will uh, certainly fortify us, shore us up and, and opportunities will come our way. I, I bury my witness of this. And so we have principles 19, 20, and 21 next week. I love 19 and 21, that limited and carefully defined powers should be delegated to the government. Which one? 19. That's 19. And everything else should be sent back to the states, for the states and the people respectively to figure that out. We're just going to do next week? No, we're going to do 20. 19, 20, and 21. Okay. And 21, I love the keystone to human freedom is strong local oh, self-government. So these are really good principles next week. So make sure you fill in the blanks. And you go back and you review the three principles that we studied this week. Mm -hmm.